I'd like to talk tonight about cultivating a, a mind that is your friend. I think everybody wants to have a mind that's a friend. Is that better on the volume? Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. And um, the, the topic of, of, um, of the talk is, is on equanimity. And equanimity is really what I understand is this um, allowing our experience, allowing our relationship to our experience be that of a, of a friend, of something um, benevolent, <laughs> workable, clear. I was recently given this, this beautiful book of poems from the first Buddhist women, the Theragata. If you haven't checked out the Theragata, it's just really, really worth checking out these, um, these women who lived more than 2,000 2, years ago and um, they're senior ordained bhikkhunis and it's just sharings of their awakenings, sharings of their experiences as women. And um, while... Certain things, are, of course, in their experience are very different from my own experience as a woman today. So much of it uh, just completely rings true all these years later. And one of the um, verses from the Theragata, from these, these wise nuns, um, is this. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. So a mind that does not shake is a mind that is equanimous. When I think about my journey in the practice, my journey with the Dhamma, and I consider what's different in my lived experience now, from when I, um, when I first set foot upon this path, I, I think that I, not I think, it really can be summed up in the presence of equanimity. You know, I'm a kind of person who I'm not just a really chill personality. I'm not really a, you know, oh, whatever, it's all fine kind of personality. I have, I have a whole range and spectrum of emotions in my, in my life on quite a regular basis, actually. But with the practice, there's just really a sense of, um, of all of that not being a problem. The practice and the development of uh, balance that comes from this practice is just a, a um, there's a kind of refuge, a kind of not taking my own personality so seriously. And that when the reactivity arises, because of course it does, um, I just don't worry so much. There's a sense of friendliness with myself, even when I, you know, I'm frustrated or impatient or whatever it is. And maybe this is true for you too, when you consider how this practice really shows up in your life, this, this um, sense of even-mindedness, of balance, of refuge, um, might be something you can relate to too. So I was reflecting on the journey of the Buddha 
And sometimes when we talk about the Buddha, just, it's helpful to allow that some, some of you might interpret the Buddha's journey and his, um, his, his story as being quite literal and quite historical. And some of you may interpret his, uh, his story as being more symbolic or archetypal. So however you interpret it, you know, the Buddha, like us, was a person who was seeking a deeper way of living. And, you know, he left a life of great comfort to find something more purposeful, to find something more meaningful. And his family and relatives didn't really get it. I don't know if this is true for any of you (laughs) coming and sitting here. And uh, just as we are experimenting with what works and what doesn't work, with what brings uh, balance and stability to the way we're meeting the moments of our lives here, he did that too. I hope nobody here is engaged in self-mortification practices, but you know, he went so far as to really harm, actually, his own body um, in his process with figuring out the right kind of effort to best support awakening. And um, as, you, as you probably know, you know, he just was in all of these um, austerities and he met Mara and he met his fear and his terror face to face, just like we all do at some point in the unfoldment of this journey. And he came to understand the middle way, the middle way as the way that leads to the end of suffering, as the way that leads to peace. And when I consider, you know, all the, all the incredible suttas and stories and teachings that he offered, I think that one of the most pivotal moments of his journey was what happened that night under the Bodhi tree when he sat down with a deep vow in his heart to um, stay put until he was fully free. On that evening... There were uh, what's called the, the three watches of the mind. There were watches of the night. I guess they're watches of the mind, but really watches of the night. Um, kind of three, you know, particular insights, progressive insights that he had. And the first watch of the night was, um, was this deep seeing into all of his past lives. He describes this as um, more than 100,000 and many eons of cosmic expansion and contraction just to give you a sense of the vastness with which he's holding um, space and time. And, um, and then in the second watch of the night, he saw the arising and passing away of countless beings according, in accordance with the, their karma. And in the, the third watch of the night, um, he came to understand clearly and directly the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the cause of suffering and um, the way to the end of suffering and the possibility, the possibility of that. Something very important happened that moment in history. Us being here is related to the causes and conditions that popped open right then, 2,600 years ago. And if you imagine what the mind of the Buddha might have been like that evening. It's, it's, a, it's actually a beautiful recollection to just sense, you know, what, 
what what the mind might have been like, this mind that was so perfectly balanced and poised um, for this kind of liberating insight to arise. And without question, his mind was was a perfect balance of the seven factors of awakening that Bonnie talked about. So you can just imagine the degree of calmness and the the keen investigation, the real interest, the joy, the joy of the interest in his experience, the the depth of collectedness, and um, and the kind of non-reactivity and stillness that is equanimity. Equanimity is the last of the seven factors of enlightenment, actually seven factors of awakening. And you know we're tasting these factors. You. You are tasting, knowing, cultivating these, these very same factors here. And so the middle way, the middle way that is this path, the middle way that um, he came to understand and that we each come to understand in our own way really has the flavor of equanimity. And um, equanimity is a, pretty high pedigree in, in these teachings. It's, uh, as I said, the last of the factors of awakening. Equanimity is, is um, the last of the paramis. It's the last of the brahma-viharas, and it's also a, a factor in the fourth jhana. And tonight I'm mostly going to speak about equanimity as a factor of awakening. You're getting a good dose of equanimity um, as a brahma-vihara in the afternoon sessions. So the word, the Pali word, for equanimity is upeka. This means to look over. I actually think that there's a difference. You know, if we say to overlook, that's a little different, right? So this is actually to look over. To look over like taking a really high view. Really high view. And uh, the word um, is also sometimes translated as tatra majatata, which is just a kind of fun word to say, actually. But um, tatra majatata means to stand in the middle of all this. I like that because there's like a nobility. There's an integrity in in this, this, to stand in the middle of all of this, just to stop and stand. And in in the suttas, Equanimity is often language. There's this language of an equanimity takes its stance. And equanimity takes its stance. I think about the, the yoga, Martha's wonderful yoga classes that are such a support to the experience here, the container here. And if you go to the yoga classes and you do tree pose, you know, you know that... Um, so much of how the experience with yoga unfolds, and as, as you might it, um, kind of advance in the, in the asana, largely comes from the ability to be centered, stable, inwardly connected. That's so much of the root of where, of what supports um, asana. And this one more, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the way he translates this is there in the middleness. There in the middleness. You see how all these translations, it's not really a thing. There, there's a, um, 
more of, more of a suchness, more of a, a quality, a presence. So equanimity is, is firm and steady, um, undisturbed, non-reactive, allowing, unswayed, spacious, really. It's a very spacious quality. For myself, my experience of equanimity is the experience of spaciousness. So, when equanimity is present, there is a a way that we are available for the Dhamma. There's a way that we are available for life to touch us when there's reactivity, right? We're we're either... um, pressing away or holding on on some level. There's a way of defending against the experience. And um, equanimity, with equanimity, we are able to really meet directly life and and one another in a fuller way. And I really want to uh, name that for me, equanimity is really, um, has everything to do with empathy. Has everything to do with empathy and interconnectedness because the kind of separation of the story of I am doesn't have a lot of room to, um, take, to take birth there. So equanimity is something that we cultivate, that we cultivate, and that's also in many ways a sort of culmination of the path. It's really both. In the Abhidhamma, there are these uh, universal beautiful factors of mind universal beautiful factors of mind and these are groups of qualities that arise in every moment of of a wholesome basically mind state and equanimity is one of them other universal beautiful qualities are our faith which we've talked about and non-greed and non-hatred and self-respect and pliancy equanimity is a, a, a neutrality of mind Neutrality of mind, and in the Abhidhamma, its its characteristic is to quiet disturbances. It's part of the settledness to quiet disturbances, and um, its function. This is interesting. Its function is to crush disturbances, but that happens through wisdom, not through a muscling of anything. And its manifestation is of peacefulness and of coolness. And its proximate cause and um, condition is consciousness and mental state. So, I mentioned that equanimity is a kind of a, a kind of refuge of sorts from our own, from our own delusion, from our own reactivity. And these are a few words by Rachel Naomi Remen. Some of you know her. She wrote um, "Kitchen Table Wisdom." She's really a wonderful woman, teacher, healer, physician. And she says in bullfighting, there's a place in the ring where the bull feels safe. If he can reach this place, he stops running and can gather his full strength. He's no longer afraid. And it's the job of the matador to know where the sanctuary lies, to be sure the bull does not have time to occupy his place of wholeness. The safe place for a bull is called the carencia. For humans, 
The carencia is a safe place in our inner world. When a person finds their carencia in full view of the matador, they are calm and peaceful. They are wise. They have gathered their strength around them. So you know how that feels, right? On a good day, when something's coming your way and there's a, um, some sort of reservoir of peace and calm that's available inside you and something just uh, doesn't light you up, perhaps, the way it might another time. We often use this, this analogy. It's, it's overused, but it's so good. I can't find a better, a, actually better metaphor that, um, of waves. That life is like a, you know, life comes in waves. Sometimes, sometimes the, the water is still and warm, peaceful, delicious. And sometimes life is filled with tidal waves that are cold and um, stormy and feeling like they, like they kind of want to take us over. And um, that it doesn't work, it doesn't work to hold the waves at bay because that's exhausting. Clinging is kind of holding the waves at bay. Resisting is holding the waves at bay. We actually spend so much time doing this I think we often don't realize the level of energy that's required in this way. And in the practice, we're learning to surf. We're learning to paddle. We're learning to ride the waves of our lives so that we're not, um, so they don't take us down. We're learning to swim with, with the waves, with the sea. And the good news is that absolutely everything we are doing here, absolutely everything you're doing here. Well, I shouldn't say everything. I don't know what you do when you're not in the hall, but the spirit, right? The spirit of what, what you're doing here is um, all about the development of mindfulness. And when the mindfulness is strong, the equanimity becomes stronger. The two go together. So equanimity comes from this, this balance of mind and it comes from the power to observe. So, you know, just a moment of mindfulness is naturally balancing. A moment of mindfulness, in a moment of mindfulness, we're not adding extra suffering. We're not adding on and piling on even more reactivity on top of what's already happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And what really uh, gives rise to equanimity, what, what roots equanimity is a mind of insight. So equanimity comes from a mind that is grounded, landed in, in some measure of understanding. And this is true for each of you already, a measure of understanding. So equanimity is a little different than calm. There's a, there's a different kind of wisdom and understanding at the heart of the presence of equanimity, and it just allows what's happening to be, to be less of a problem, to be less of a drama. If you think about this, so most most of us when we sit retreat have, you know, a few oldies but goodies that we deal with, right? It could be fear, it could be comparing mind, it could be feeling not important or feeling like you have to be perfect 
or, um, you know, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. And on retreat, right, it's designed so that these, these habit patterns, they come up, we engage them, we meet them, we get to know them. And, and you know how it is when sometimes these habit patterns come up and they just, boom, take you down. You get totally identified. You wish you couldn't, but there's just the struggle, right? There's not a feeling of space. And it's like your face is pressed against the glass. That's, that's how it is. Sometimes that's how it goes. And other times, when the attention is, when there's wise attention, when the mindfulness is stronger, you know, the same um, body energy, the same habit pattern, the same mental formation, the whole, the thought can come, the emotion can come, and it's like, just not sticky. There's just not a problem. A sense of like, like um, maybe you're onto it. It's happening, but you have seen where this comes from. You know something about this. You know more than to believe this. It's happening, but you don't have to pick it up in quite the same way. And there's some freedom right there. It's important actually to, to see that this is happening, <laughs> that as many times as we can feel stuck, it's important to see all the times when these pieces come and they don't define you in the same way. This is happening here. So the presence of equanimity in this regard has less to do with the absence of reactivity. Equanimity, like it doesn't help to try to try <laughs> to try to be equanimous, like getting rid of the reactivity, because that's just a big aversion, basically, just a big manipulation of the experience. But um, equanimity is in just being able to see what's arising and just not identifying quite so much. You know, you can just uh, wish, may I meet this moment with peace? May I meet this moment with balance? As Sylvia Borstein says, may I meet this moment as a friend? And so just the intention when you notice, oh, so much reactivity, you know, I'm caught. May I meet this moment as a friend? Right there, just that intention alone. You might have to say it a hundred times, it's no problem. Begins to bring in that quality of um, okayness in the middle of the waves. I had a great wait, I had a great opportunity, another growth opportunity to work with this myself yesterday morning. I checked my email right when I woke up yesterday morning and I got some news that did not exactly please me. I've been trying to buy a home and I've never owned a home. I've never taken out a big loan like that. This is completely a new world to me, the world of mortgages and interest rates and finance and loan corporations and going to different banks to figure out what they can do. So I've just been getting this crash course um, the past few months and found this place in Durango that's really a good fit for me, for where I'm at and for what I can do. And I got to say, being a Dharma teacher is not the easiest thing to get a home loan. Um, <laughs> I wish they could come know what happens in this hall. It's like, you, you do what? You work where? Huh? And um, <laughs> so if you idealize the life of Dharma teachers, that's just a little piece. <laughs> 
But so anyway, I've, I've, um, I got this loan. At least I was supposed to get this loan. I've done all this work. I've been spending every day off since the new year researching, working on this. And, and um, it's, it's hard for me. That kind of world is, is not a natural fit for kind of how this mind is designed. So it, t- it takes a fair bit of effort for me. But I've been determined. I've been going for it. And... Um, you know, spent a lot of time and some money for this to happen. And I got this email yesterday morning that this big loan corporation, well, they made a mistake. They made a mistake about how my income is going to be calculated. So there's a problem that the loan is not going to work. And um, I got the news and I just, my heart just sunk. I felt so disappointed. I felt like just, just, deflated in a certain way, just so bummed out. And I came, and as I was sitting here in the hall yesterday morning, I just, I was saying to the teachers, I feel activated, I just felt buzzy inside myself, like, even though I was looking forward to the interviews, I just wanted to get right on the phone with the bank and tell them exactly what I thought. And, um, and as this was all happening, um, it was really interesting to watch what was, what was going on. Clearly, my response is natural, understandable, quite human, and, um, and some reactivity. My response wasn't just, oh, no problem, I'll go find another lawn. I, I, that wasn't the response. <laughs> and it was just a sense of um, allowing and accepting the response that arose to be there and be exactly what it was. It was okay. It made sense. This heart-mind can absolutely sit and be with not knowing and frustration, and feeling deflated. I forgot about it as soon as I started interviewing. You all were much more interesting than that. <laughs> you know? And today it's a lot less, and I'm, I'm talking with them, and we'll see what happens. And there's just a different sense of trust in, in that there can be peace and happiness, even if this isn't the one property I end up, I end up um, having for myself in Durango. But so the equanimity wasn't so much that it was all just chill for me. You know, the equanimity was just this um, okayness. Like awareness can hang out with that. Awareness can hang out with that, with the, with the little storm that was um, really internal, actually. The storms usually are really internal. So any time you notice that you are feeling rattled, that you are feeling um, like there's a rock in your shoe, that you're feeling um, somebody, I heard this somebody describe that feeling like when you know there's something like a chip on one of your teeth and the tongue just keeps going there. I don't know if that was on this retreat or not, but just over and over again, the tongue can't quite stay away from the little um, chip on the tooth. Um, Any time you, you're feeling that kind of um, tension or, or contraction, right there is the time to begin practicing equanimity. Not to meddle with the experience as much as um, just to bring a thread of spaciousness in a thread of of knowing your own capacity, the capacity of the awareness that we share to allow, to befriend, just to touch and to hold that experience. So actually, equanimity practice is especially helpful 
when we're, when we're feeling a little off kilter. You've probably heard the example that uh, it's kind of like with equanimity, we, we grow our container. We become more resilient. If you took a teaspoon of salt and you put it in my water glass here, it would taste really salty, wouldn't it? And if you took a teaspoon of salt and you put it down in Lake Lagunitas outside of Fairfax and you grabbed a little bit of that water, you, you wouldn't be able to taste the salt. It disperses. Equanimity is like becoming a larger and larger container to uh, hold what happens so that it doesn't, um, so that we don't become it in the same way. I came across this book called A Pearl in the Storm. I love that title. A Pearl in the Storm, How I Found My Heart in the Middle of the Ocean. And this is about a woman's journey. Her name is Tori Murden McClure. And she was the first woman to row across the Atlantic by herself. Can you imagine even wanting to do that? <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> she wanted to do that. And she did it. The first time she did it, uh, she was out there for a long time and, and um, she wasn't able to complete it because the hurricane season was so awful. So she tried again and she made it. And she was out by herself for 81 days and she traveled. So this is a, this is a rowboat, not a, no motor on this boat. Yeah, a rowboat. She traveled 2,960 two miles in this boat that was 23 feet long, four feet high, and six feet wide. Just her and all the ocean creatures. And um, (laughs) one thing that she talks about is that on the second trip, she um, learned to to put pads in the ceiling. Like there's this little compartment underneath. She learned to put pads in the ceiling because she learned from her first trip that she was going to spend a lot of time with her head against the ceiling. And you know what that means, the boat's turning over. So she padded the ceiling of the internal compartment of the, of the boat. And um, here's, here's a few things that she said. When she was asked, what did you find on the row that you weren't expecting? She said, after a few months of the packages floating in salt water, you shouldn't eat the cracked M&Ms. <laughs> She says, squid can fly. She said, I was surprised at how much I missed people. In civilization, there are days when I'm not even sure I like people, but on the ocean, I really missed human contact. She says, I was surprised how quickly my emotions could turn from euphoric to desperate, from sublime to outrageous, from blissful to barbaric. With a tailwind, I was a saint. With a headwind, I was madness itself. Can you relate a little bit here? (laughs) She says, yelling at the wind is like throwing water at the ocean. So you're certainly not alone in the middle of the Atlantic, but it it can feel like that sometimes in the places that the mind goes to. And she, um, this is really beautiful, Her, her kind of, main statement from the experience is this. She says, if you know what it means to be out in the middle of an ocean by yourself, in the dark, scared, 
then it gives you a feel for what every other human being is going through. I row an actual ocean. Other people have just as many obstacles to go through. So beautiful. Clearly for her, that wasn't just some big, you know, ego-sporting endeavor. It was much, it was a much deeper expression of her journey. So in that spirit, some of what Tori's connecting with is, um, is this, this uh, shared humanity of how it is to be human. This is, this is in part the teaching of the vicissitudes, the worldly winds, these winds that uh, make those waves happen. And just, just to name them, um, the worldly winds of, of, and you might just think about this like today for yourself. These aren't abstractions so much, but of pleasure and pain. Of, of uh, gain and loss of praise and blame, of fame and of disrepute. You know, in one sitting, we can cycle through these over and over and over. And part of the the common human experience is we will experience these worldly winds and we like the first of them. We like the praise and the pleasure and the fame. We want it, right? And the, the other, the second of each pair, we, uh, we don't want it so much. We'll do everything to not go through pain and loss and blame. Dolly Parton says, if you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. <laughs> so when we see these worldly winds, when we see the inevitability of the worldly winds, just letting go becomes, it becomes the only sane response. The only sane response. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how, how to, how to, cultivate uh, this, this balance, even-mindedness. And two, two aspects, the aspect of really connecting with what's here and keying into the presence of spaciousness. And uh, this first, connecting with experience, mindfulness, vitaka, vichara, we're aiming, we're sustaining, we're connecting with experience, with what the mind is known. Uh, knowing in any in any given moment and connecting with experience, connecting with the wave, you know, if you're in your rowboat, connecting with the wave in a way that is non-distracted, that is clear, that is aware, that um, that knows, and in connecting with experience. You know, the freedom is, is really in, in, um, in part in, in the degree of interest. You know, are you as interested in neutral experience? Are you as interested in um, difficult emotion as you are in the experience of a sit where the, the mind is collected and there's not a lot of pain in the body? Is it possible to have interest in both of these? Um, connecting 
with experience, just recognizing, all right, here I am again, you know, in this story that I know so well, here it is. Okay, may I meet this moment as a friend? And obviously I want to be clear that connecting in an undistracted way, that's a general instruction, right? Sometimes your teachers will, will tweak it a little bit and it's always important to follow what they say. Sometimes with certain things we, we um, want to redirect the attention or we want to um, bring in a recollection. There's, there's different ways that, that we will tweak the practice to support balance. Actually, as teachers, that's a lot of what we're doing when you come in to talk with us is just checking, checking for the balance of the mind because when the mind is in balance it, within the seven factors, the insight unfolds on its own. So a large part of what we're doing is checking how can we support this quality of balance. And the second is... Um, is tuning into some sense of spaciousness. Not just as a word like, yeah, may I be spacious, but as a, a felt sense, a little like a guy, I wasn't here, but I know Guy led a big mind meditation. That meditation uh, invites a sense of spaciousness, a sense of, of vastness and in connecting with a sense of spaciousness, it can be really helpful to notice not just the object, not just um, going toward the object so much, but to also notice the subject, to notice that which is aware, to notice the quality of the mind paying attention, to notice the presence of this wonder of knowing. Like in a moment of feeling rattled, the rattle, the feeling of rattled is there, and the knowing of it is not at all rattled. The knowing of it is just knowing. So in any moment, if we can just step back a little bit to um, allow the awareness to really be holistic, to widen. It often helps um, to really allow the body to relax and to soften, to settle back. And sometimes when there's a lot of thought to, to support balance in the mind, it can be helpful to just um, breathe through the thoughts, breathe through the waves, breathe deeply and fully, not so loud everybody can hear you, but breathe, walk, walk through the mind state, walk through the thoughts. Because none of it, right, is as solid as we can think, as solid as it can seem like. You know, when you feel knotted up, a knot, a knot cannot untie unless there's a space for that to happen. So it's like some of the suffering, some of the reactivity, the space just gives room for the untangling and, and um, room to see the deeper conditioning that keeps these, these patterns in place. So the capacity for spaciousness in my experience, is a, is a really key part of what allows equanimity to grow. You know, the Buddha had a son, Rahula. I was thinking, how cool would it be if your dad was the Buddha? Could you imagine having a dad that was the Buddha and getting that? Wow. So he had a son. When his son was 18, his son was in robes, Rahula. And... Uh, being the cool Buddha dad he was, he gave Rahula all these different teachings. I think of these as being these, you know, teachings that 
any person ought to be given in, in life. Um, life would be a lot easier if we got those teachings when we were 18. And one of his instructions to his son, Rahula, is this. He says, Rahula, develop a meditation in tune with space. For when you're developing the meditation in tune with space, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. Just as space is not established anywhere, in the same way, when you're developing the meditation in tune with space, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. So that's, that's the flavor of equanimity. These sense impressions, agreeable or disagreeable, aren't staying in charge of the mind. He also told his son a lot of other things, including to develop a mind like the earth and more. Another way to understand this practice is, is the, the practice of bearing witness. Such power in just bearing witness, not just externally, but also internally. I've been uh, touched by Roshi Bernie Glassman's work. Some of you know his, his, um, he has a whole like Zen order where bearing witness is the primary practice and I love it because he calls this peacemaking. And again, I like that that's active, peacemaking. So if you want to do some peacemaking with yourself, some friend-making with your mind, you might remember to bear witness. Bear witness. That's so different than fixing, isn't it? He, um, he leads people in these practices that are called plunges, where... Um, Sometimes he and, and practitioners will do things like go out on the street and live with homeless people. They will become homeless people themselves for a period of time. I don't know if they actually, if they actually give up their homes, but they live without being in their homes or without money for a period of time. They become. It's very, that's very different. Becoming a homeless person for a while is a very different level of engagement than being in their home and going out and going back to the home at night. You know, they actually, they do that. They do these plunges. They went to Auschwitz and did a, did a plunge in Auschwitz. How powerful that must have been. And um, Bernie Glassman wrote a whole piece about uh, his experience with this practice after the death of his wife. It's a wonderful article called Partnership Beyond Death. And he clearly had a, a, a deep and a great love uh, with his wife, Jishu. And he and Jishu, quite some time ago, this is in the, the late 90s, he and his wife moved to Santa Fe, and he moved to Santa Fe with his wife because his wife, she really wanted to be there. He wasn't into it. He saw himself as being a city person, but his wife loved the, and I love that too, the adobes and the, the ristras and the... the um, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and they, she wanted to live there with, with, um, with her dogs, and she wanted a big garden. And so they left to move to Santa Fe, and they got there. And um, just within a period of about two weeks, she, she died quite suddenly. And so he was left in Santa Fe in this home that was pretty much for his wife, 
pretty much what she wanted. He was, he was there. And um, they went through the funeral, and he was in shock. And he talks about that his um, advanced copy of his new book, Bearing Witness, had just arrived, and that the three tenets of, this, um, of his Zen peacemaker order, the three tenets are not knowing bearing witness to joy and suffering and healing ourselves and others. And he just didn't know what to do. I mean, understandably, his whole world was turned upside down. A great practitioner. He was feeling completely lost. And um, somebody said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to bear witness. And he canceled all of his appearances for a year, and he said he was going to do a plunge. And he was going to do a plunge into Jishu, his, um, his deceased wife. And he said it was his hardest plunge of all. And he goes on to talk about how he spent his days for all these months. And I just want to share with you a little bit of what he said. Um, you know, he goes on to say that he, he really wasn't sure he could do it. And um, it seemed as if I was surrounded by the things that Jishu loved. I couldn't look anywhere without thinking how she would have loved to see this, how she would have expl- exclaimed over this or that. But instead, I watched the hummingbirds. I sniffed the flowers. And I didn't want to. I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave the house, leave Santa Fe. But I stayed for nine months. Except on two occasions. In early June, I went to Philadelphia to install a group of students in the Zen Peacemaker Order. They began their studies with Jishu, and I installed them in her name. And he also went to visit Ram Das, and he talks about that as he was bearing witness to his grief in this home with her picture, you know, finishing the jigsaw puzzle she had left, that um, he says she was integrating with me. I was becoming Jishu Bernie. He said when she was still alive, Jishu had brought into our relationship certain energies that had lain dormant in me. She brought her softness, her femininity, her down-to-earth practicality and deep empathy into our life together. Now with her death, I either had to manifest them myself or watch them disappear from my life. Jishu wasn't the only one to die that first day of spring. Bernie died too. Someone else is now emerging. Someone else is coming to life. For lack of a name, I call that person Jishu Bernie. This new human being is still unfolding. I don't know who this person is or what this person will do. There are so many things I don't know. And he goes on to say, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to create anything. Love arises by itself. It's been there all the time and now when I'm less protected than at any other moment in my life, it's there. People ask me every day how I'm doing. I don't know how to answer them. There are no words. So I just tell them I'm bearing witness. It must be hard, they say. No. But isn't it sad, they ask? Isn't it painful? No, I say. It's raw. That's all. It's bearing witness. And the state of bearing witness is the state of love. And he goes on, he writes more and more about his um, experience of becoming uh, Jishu Bernie. The state of bearing witness, the state of um, being raw, and the state of love, bearing witness, is the flavor 
expression of equanimity. <coughs> so, what we're doing here in some ways is training ourselves to perceive what we have been trained out of perceiving. You know, we get a lot of training in the dominant culture in this country and maybe other places too, to, um, to perceive what's difficult, to perceive what makes us individual, to perceive what makes us separate, to perceive the ways we could be better. It's kind of that roommate or commentary <laughs> that we talked a little bit about in the hall, to perceive stress. And um, some of what we're opening to perceiving here are our qualities of space and spaciousness, qualities of clear knowing. Um, we're perceiving the immediacy of change. We're perceiving, you know, these Dharma views that burst forth, that we're developing the the understanding to perceive more of um, actually what connects us, which has more to do with the stillness inside of us than all of the activity of our personality, that stillness that recognizes itself in one another. And, um, and so we're, we're cultivating, Ajahn Suchido uses this example of mindfulness being like fingers, like your fingers can feel the texture and the the, um, all the details, if you touch you know, your arm and you can feel the texture of the, of the hair and um, you know, the roughness or smoothness of the skin. This is like mindfulness, like f- noticing all the details about an experience, framing it up. And he talks about um, awareness as being like the palm, like if the palm just touches your arm and it's just this bare, receptive attention. You know, not all the detail perhaps, but just this receptive knowing and meeting. And our minds have this, um, this really this capacity for both. Ajahn Chah describes this really beautifully. This, um, this is about the objects of mind objects and also the flavor of the knowing, probably kind of like what Guy probably talked about in his talk on unentangled knowing. But this is a great... Uh, Peace, Ajahn Shah, this is, this is as told by Ajahn Amaro in the book Small Boat, Great Mountain. And he's telling about being around Ajahn Shah and that Ajahn Shah would, would ask his, his uh, yogis, his, his um, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, have you ever seen still water? And they would nod, yes, of course, we've seen still water before. And then he would ask, well, have you seen still flowing water? And they'd respond, yes. Sorry, have you seen flowing water? And they'd respond, yes, we've seen flowing water. And then he would ask, so did you ever see still flowing water? And they'd respond, no, that we've never seen. He loved to get that bewilderment effect. Ajahn Chah would then explain that the mind's nature is still, yet it's flowing. It's flowing, yet it's still. He would use the word citta for the knowing mind, the mind of awareness. The citta itself is totally still. It has no movement. It's not related to all that arises and ceases. It is silent and spacious. Mind objects, sights, sounds, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, and emotions flow through it. 
Problems arise because the clarity of the mind gets entangled with sense impressions. By contemplating our own experience, we can make a clear distinction between the mind that knows, or citta, and the sense impressions that flow through it. By refusing to get entangled with any sense impressions, we find refuge in that quality of stillness, silence, and spaciousness. This policy of non-interference allows everything and is disturbed by nothing. I think Ajahn Amaro puts this into words so beautifully. So beautifully. And it can be a bit of that bewilderment effect like Ajahn Shah was speaking to. So, um, equanimity that is, that is mature and that is well-developed, that's stabilized, that's deep. Classically, this is really the, the state of mind from which liberating insight emerges. It's the equanimous mind that has the um, quietness to notice in a, in a very immediate way, a very momentary way. And it's possible, you know, it's possible to know equanimity in a, in a refined way in the practice when the seven factors are, are strong and the seven factors are balanced. You know, the, the object being known can be known in a, in a more uh, subtle, in a more subtle way, so that the arising and passing is known just in every moment. The object's known, consciousness arises and passes. And when the mind is in this kind of state of deep balance, pleasant and unpleasant, um, it's not compelling anymore. Um, the mind is not perturbed, not bothered by pleasant and unpleasant, but there's really a... Uh, a deep, a deep dwelling in neutrality and a measure of peace that comes from this deep dwelling in, um, in stillness. And when the mind is in that place, reactivity does not arise. So there is a very clear seeing you know, of, of impermanence, of anicca. And within that, there's not so much room for the story of I am to land. There's not so much room for clinging. The clinging, the clinging can let go. The, the activity really settles down. This is by Juan Ramon Jimenez, Oceans. I think he's um, speaking to what I'm, what I'm pointing to. He says, I, I have a feeling that my boat has struck down there in the depths against a great thing and nothing happens. Silence, waves, nothing happens or has everything happened and are we standing now quietly in the new life? So, Equanimity is just one of the, one of the, it's conditioned, it's definitely a conditioned mind state. You can cling to equanimity, absolutely. But it's one of the uh, closest conditioned states we can know that has, that has a bit of the flavor of, of the unconditioned, a bit of the flavor of Nibbana in it because of the stillness, because of the non-reactivity. 
because of the peace. Peace is a word that's used to describe equanimity, also used to describe nibbana. I'll end with another poem. An old favorite by Donald Babcock. This was in the New Yorker way back in 1947, The Little Duck. You might imagine yourself as a bit of a little duck when you hear this. It's good. He says, now now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of a duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the Bodhi tree, but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you. But he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's religion, and the duck has it. He's made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. Just sit for a moment. 